It's interesting the way you talk about how the press at the time would have treated such a visit. It sounds like almost like it, you know, when Oprah has come to Alberta, there's yes. like a big splash in the press. In a historical context, it would have been a big deal if you we had other countries coming to look at our eugenics programs because it would have meant that we were doing something really right. I'm Chris Chang and Phillips, Edmonton's Historian Laureate, and this is Let's Find Out, a monthly podcast about the history of Edmonton, Alberta, or Amiskwichi Waskahigan on Treaty 6 territory. Each episode, I take questions from curious Edmontonians about local history, and then we find out the answers together. This episode, The Multiplication of Evil. Tess Dehoog asks whether it's true that the German Nazi party came to Edmonton to learn about Alberta's eugenics program. This is a story about a rumor that we learned has been floating around for a long time. This question's a heavy one, one that asks us to own up to the mistakes of our own province's past. But as we'll see, the premise behind it might be an easy way out. It starts in studio at CJSR, the community radio station tucked away underground at the University of Alberta. Okay, um, my name is Tess Hoog. I've lived in Edmonton for a very long time. Um, I am a teacher, and that's it. History enthusiast. <laughs> yes, I like. I find um, I find local history really fascinating, and I and I like uh, history that maybe isn't obvious or maybe sometimes is unsavory to people. Ooh, go on. What do you mean by not obvious? Um. Well, I th- I think, and, and I think that this is is really um, well. This is a, I mean, look at what's happening in the states right now. People people are obviously very frustrated by the uh, singular narrative that has been shared. So having having other I don't want to say other voices because those voices have always been there, but just a variety of voices in in history. So I find that interesting rather than just the, you know, the European uh, same old, same old. Okay, so you're interested in histories that don't typically get shared a lot. Right, Um, yeah. What fascinated you about this particular question? And would you mind sharing your question? I'm trying to remember what my original question was because I emailed you a few months ago. (laughs) But essentially... um, when I was working on my ed degree here at the, at the U of A, um, one of the classes kind of touched upon eugenics in, in Alberta, and we watched um, we watched a film about it. Uh, and I wish I could remember the woman's name who sued the Alberta government and and won. Is this Leilani Muir? Yes, thank you. And um, I I just kind of found it interesting that you know I, I was. Well, I was probably almost 40 at the time, and I was just kind of learning about this history and just how 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 important that idea was to a lot of significant Canadians and why I just wanted to know why that kind of wasn't a more prominent narrative. And uh, so I think my original question was just kind of like how how big of a role was eugenics in Alberta? Something like that. The the part that you reached out that I thought would be interesting to focus on for an episode um, was you had asked 
did Nazi scientists ever visit Alberta to learn about Alberta's eugenics program? Right, because that was something that was shared with us, that, that it, Alberta was so darn good at it that <laughs> the Nazi party had come to, to learn from us. I'm going to hop out here to explain a little bit about what we're talking about. I want to take you back to October 15th, 1925, to an issue of a newspaper in southern Alberta called the McLeod Times. They published an article from an American criminologist that day titled The Investigation of Crime. This criminologist writes about the criminal tendencies facing society in 1925, about the need to understand their fundamental causes, and he says, it being an established fact that the origin of crime is a matter of heredity, it must necessarily follow that the application of the laws of eugenics are entirely responsible for the development of criminal traits in an individual. Eugenics, he says, is the science of the improvement of the human race by better breeding. He wasn't an outlier. Plenty of white Anglo-Saxon Albertans were worried about the epidemic of crime, lunacy, and sexual promiscuity. They thought that by stopping, quote, feeble-minded and degenerate people from having children, they could nip those problems in the bud. That criminologist thought that regulating citizens' breeding would be too complicated for government to take on. But Alberta did it, just three years later. In 1928, the United Farmers of Alberta provincial government passed the Sexual Sterilization Act, setting up a board to examine inmates in mental hospitals and sterilize them to prevent, quote, the danger of procreation with its attendant risk of multiplication of the evil by transmission of the disability to progeny. Over the next 40-odd years, over 2,000 people were sexually sterilized in our province. This is not a mistake from our distant past. We had a sterilization program until 1972. That means there are survivors still living with the effects, many of whom were sterilized without even being told what was happening, let alone giving consent. Alberta's eugenics program started pretty early, before the Nazis formed government in Germany. So we start our journey with tests by tracing how these programs were implemented around the world, from Britain to California. I, I, and I, I agree with you that it is uh, fascinating and disturbing that, A, a we had this really organized program of sterilizing and preventing people from having children if they were seen as... Um, mentally defective in some way or not worthy of being in the gene pool. And also, I think it's really disturbing that we don't publicly talk about it very much. It, it isn't really in the public record. So I thought your question would be a really interesting avenue to get into it because it's, you know, it's, it's a fascinating question on its own, but also because it would open up these avenues to learn more about the history of it. Um, so Sam, do you mind telling uh, Tess how we got started digging into this question? Starting from your question about whether the Nazi party visited Alberta. That's our assistant producer, Sam Power. Um, I sort of looked for the main points of Alberta's own eugenics program um, and looked through the history of it. Um, we passed the act in 1928. It was one of the earlier acts. Um, and uh, we, I looked at sort of how that was formed and what interaction points there might be for Alberta to have had with the Nazi party, whether they came to Alberta or whether they found out about our legislative program through, there were a couple of international um, meetings, like committee meetings that happened uh, in the States, sort of gatherings of eugenics. 
experts. Experts. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so I started to think maybe um, there was a meeting point there and looked into those types of things. So essentially what I did was just gather um, who the experts were and where the legislative decisions were being made um, and where interaction focal points might have happened. Um, I didn't find anything conclusive initially, um, but there, it did, obviously, Alberta's program, as we know from studying and looking at this, was one of the more, unfortunately, renowned programs. <laughs> and lasted a long time. Like, didn't Alberta continue on a lot longer than yeah, we everywhere were, else in the world? I think we were pretty much the last body to get rid of the, the laws, and it wasn't until the 70s. It was Peter Lougheed who finally got rid of it, so... Um, they were in place a lot longer, um, and for some reason, internationally, after uh, World War II, f- kind of flew under the radar of international attention. Um, even though eugenics really fell out of favor after World War II, um, but we still kept on. <laughs> yeah. So those are sort of the flashpoints of what where I was looking for information. One of the resources that Sam dug up uh, that we thought would be a good place to look for researchers who've maybe already explored this question was the eugenics archive. Are you familiar with this website? Mm, yes. Okay, yeah. So <laughs> eugenicsarchive.ca is on its own. It's a really interesting resource um, for learning about this history. It's it's really well designed. Um, lots of ways to learn about timelines and people that were involved in the program. And also they have a great resource page of people <laughs> who um, contributed to that uh, research. So um, we started digging into the names of people who had uh, contributed to this website. Um, So one of the people that we want to feature on the episode is the person we're going to speak to tonight. That's Leslie Baker. She is currently a researcher based at Mount St. Vincent University in Nova Scotia. Okay. Um, Another resource we looked into was uh, Claudia Malacrita's book, um, A Special Hell. Institutional Life in Alberta's Eugenics Years. So this is a book uh, focused on the Michener Center, okay. um, which is in which was in Red Deer and uh, which was um, a place where lots of people who were seen as mentally defective in some way, people who had a whole range of disabilities, uh, were institutionalized, but also where a lot of Alberta's eugenics program was administered from. So we reached out to Claudia uh, to see if she had any particular knowledge of this topic about um, the Alberta connection potentially to um, researchers from Germany. Um, and she connected us uh, to Paul Lombardo, a researcher based at Georgia State University. And he connected us <laughs> to somebody else. So uh, Paul uh, and Claudia, neither of them had a direct source on this, um, but they had heard the rumor similarly. Um, so they connected us to Erica Dick at the University of Saskatchewan. And I'm going to share a little bit about what she told us after we talked to Leslie, just so we don't spoil anything for, <laughs> <laughs> for Leslie's conversation. Um, another place we reached out to was the Historic Edmonton Northern Alberta Facebook group, which I think you might be part of that group. Um, it's a really interesting group of history nerds on Facebook. Um, so I just asked, who would you guys recommend? I did see your post, yes. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so they uh, pitched some interesting researchers that they'd heard of. And one link that I got really excited by was a summary of a talk from the Alberta, uh, sorry, the Archive Society of Alberta conference that went on last year. Um, Somebody summarized the talk they went to about um, social justice in archives and the fact that uh, around 
80% of the records that the Alberta government had kept in the eugenics uh, period had been destroyed. Um, so the researcher that did that presentation, Courtney Maxwell Alves, she's quoted in this article summarizing her presentation as having had some knowledge of this Nazi connection to the Alberta program. So I thought, that's great. I'll just reach out to Courtney. She would probably knows the answer to this question. Um, and I did get a hold of her, but she said, unfortunately, I can't answer that question for sure. Um, so that ended up being a dead end. Um, still digging through for uh, a primary source on that. Um, other places we looked for an answer to your question, um, there's a book called Racial Hygiene by Robert Proctor. Um, this looks at uh, eugenics from the German side of the philosophy and um, developments throughout the uh, ascendance of the Nazi party. And actually, interest in Germany in the, in the field of eugenics predates the rise of the Nazi party. So this was a really interesting resource. But came up with no particular answer on that question. Um, I also dig into, dug into a book called Eugenics and the Firewall by Jane Harris Joven and uh, couldn't find an answer in there. So hopefully our conversation this evening will provide you with a satisfying answer to your question. I'm so impressed by the amount of like <laughs> digging you guys have done. <laughs> you didn't just Google it? I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> We did. I, I, I googled it. Did you google it, Sam? Well, that's how I start. Always. You always start by googling. Yeah. <laughs> so the first person we got on the phone to answer this question was Erica Dick at the University of Saskatchewan, author of a book called Facing Eugenics. One second, I'm just going to transfer you to our soundboard. Erica asked herself a very similar question at the start of her research into this field. Yeah, uh, I. Would love to start just by getting you to introduce yourself and your connection to um, the eugenics archive and that that research, if you don't mind. Sure. Yeah, I'm I'm a history professor, and I originally was working at the University of Alberta in the history department, and also in the medical school. And I started working on the history of eugenics in Alberta, partly because it's a, a fascinating topic. It was. Um, anchored in the in the work that I was doing in Alberta already. And there were so many really tantalizing threads and tidbits and fragments of information that I just wanted to find out a little bit more about what had actually happened in, in Alberta. What what fascinates you about this? Um, there are several several different parts of it. I think now, having spent several years on it, I think they they've changed a little bit from the initial my initial reasons for getting interested. I think at first I was I was interested just in the overall ideas, you know, why were Albertan politicians and Albertan people particularly interested in a form of population control that was being tested in other parts of the world, but very few places in Canada actually took it up with, with serious intent, and very few places in Canada actually formally legalized a form of uh, this kind of eugenics program. Um, so I was really curious about why it had been so aggressive in Alberta relative to other Canadian jurisdictions, and what were the reasons why, like, what was the glue that held it together? Hmm. Um, what would you conclude about why it took hold in Alberta particularly? Well, you know, I think I think the answers are maybe less exciting, perhaps, <laughs> than I had originally thought. You know, I thought there'd be maybe some more... Um, there were lots of different myths about the the reasons why Albertans were interested in this. Uh, some of them were, you know, that the Nazis had visited uh, Alberta at some point and were really intrigued by this. And this, you know, there was a sense of pride almost in connecting these programs. 
Um, and I didn't find any evidence to that. Uh, I searched through German newspapers. I searched through local newspapers. I thought, surely, if there were international officials coming to Canada, there would be some reporting on it. And I couldn't find anything at all. Um, but I did see that that rumor present in a number of different uh, local histories and local rememberings, I suppose. Um, but it was actually much more grassroots, and it was much more progressive even. So it fits into an earlier history of eugenics and population control. And we, we sort of have to try to ignore the Holocaust when we start looking through these records. We, we know that that comes on the horizon, and we know that it changes dramatically the way that we understand human experimentation, medical ethics, genocide. There are all sorts of really dark images associated with the Holocaust for obvious and good reasons. Um, but before that time, some of the language that they're using, they don't. I don't think they have the same kind of intent. So they're talking about sexual sterilization. They're talking about population control. Um, but really, what happens in Alberta is you've got a farmer's party, uh, the United Farmers of Alberta, that are elected in 1921, I think. If I excuse my bad memory right now, um, and they're very interested in bringing agrarian reforms to bear, and there are a lot of people interested in animal husbandry. They're, this kind of flows naturally to notions of controlling populations. Now, it is driven, I think, to a large degree by anti-immigrant uh, perspectives, so not wanting certain elements of the population to you know, outgrow other parts of the population. So there's these kind of twin goals of controlling population by changing immigration laws, which is done at the federal level, of course, um, but also to do it internally. And so there's this, this sort of the politics of population control play out in Alberta differently than they would have in perhaps a place that was less agrarian and wasn't ruled at that time or governed by a, an agrarian party. But what's interesting to me is even when those sentiments fade away, as they do rather quickly, um, the programs and the policies that support eugenics remain in place. Through the social the credit government? Change. Yeah. And here I found not only are notions, there's, there's notions of, um, I don't want to tie it so specifically to social credit and say, you know, it was part of their, their platform or anything, but certainly they inherited the Sexual Sterilization Act. They didn't change it initially. They did change it ultimately, but they strengthened it rather than weakening it even at a time when there was growing international pressure to change eugenics laws or to abandon them altogether. This is sort of interesting that um, the second premier under the social credit government, Ernest Manning, had a son who fit into the eugenics framework. He had been institutionalized since he was a child. He was a dependent adult, ultimately living in the Michener Center in Red Deer, where many of the sterilizations took place. Now, Neither his biographer, nor his wife, nor his son remember whether or not um, his other son was sterilized. So his son, of course, is Preston Manning. Um, but they certainly felt that uh, Ernest Manning was committed to this program because he knew firsthand the toll that taking care of, in this case, disabled adults took on families. And he felt it was unfair for those families to take on the risk of the extra burden of a grandchild. Preston Manning's brother was in the Michener Center? Mm-hmm. Wow. He was first institutionalized in the United States, but later he was brought back to Canada. What was his brother's name? Keith. Keith. Wow, I had no idea. So we learned that Alberta became a world leader in a very damaging practice. But as Erica says, our province is not alone. 
We share this dark history with over 30 states in the U.S., and we borrowed a lot of ideas from them. Erica maps out why eugenics took hold in Alberta based on evidence from other states that had already implemented their own policies. The, the one thing that I noticed in looking at the records is there was definitely a lot of concern about European immigrants. In the, so in the local records, in the Alberta records, um, concerns at the, at the government level about European immigrants coming into Alberta. And so there was, there was quite a lot of mistrust of foreigners for the, you know, to use the language that they were using at the time. Um, and they were quite suspicious of people coming in, or particularly people who were going to set up families, which they felt sometimes in very explicit terms and other times that it was a little more politically correct. They talked about how they had, you know, the wrong values and um, they would never really become Canadianized in that very sort of classic anti-immigration sentiments from the 1920s. But the one place that they did go to, for sure, was California. So they sent um, researchers, as well as, I think, perhaps some decision-makers, like policymakers, were looking at the California sexual sterilization program. And California sterilized, I think it was about 20,000 people, and that's compared with the almost 3,000 people who were sterilized in Alberta. Now, there are different populations, but they were very intrigued by the California experiment, um, some of which was taking place in mental hospitals, much like in Alberta, but also in jails. Um, there was a, a rumor in California about having um, your parole hearing was supposed to be whether or not you would be, for men, whether they were willing to have a vasectomy and then they could be paroled. Wow. Yeah. That's now, that didn't occur extreme. in Alberta. But the argument for it was that it was much cheaper to let people out of jail and not have to pay for those state institutions um, and have people they believe to have been sort of rendered more docile but also um, incapable of having children and passing on any kinds of defects they might have. Of course, there's an assumption that a lot of this stuff is hereditary. So it didn't get as aggressive in Alberta, but they certainly looked at the cost-saving projections that California had calculated. And so how do we know um, about that California connection? I remember seeing it in the correspondence. There were certainly reports from California that were included in the ministerial correspondence so that they were they had access to. They probably read them. They were date stamped. So we can we can assume that they at least crossed the desks of these officials who were making the policy. They also wrote back, they were writing in the correspondence between officials, suggesting that if California has saved this much based on these numbers, we look to save a million dollars if we implement this program now. And, you know, over the next, in Paul Lombardo's study, he says, you know, three generations, no imbeciles. This was a famous phrase by a judge who claimed that if we started to sterilize people um, now and, and kind of captured the population that was the most at risk, that are, you know, people who were considered dangerous, but also those who were simply not intelligent enough. That's the imbecile and morons category of feeble-mindedness. If we captured that population and sterilized them, then within three generations, we would root out this problem entirely. Wow. Of course, it's a, as we now know, this is based on some fairly faulty science and some fairly faulty assumptions about human intelligence and what human value. Um, however, the sort of crude calculations uh, were very, very um, attractive to policymakers, particularly during the Depression when state 
budgets were pretty slim. So how did Alberta's particular brand of eugenics take shape? We really see eugenics come out of Britain, which is really interesting because Britain doesn't institute a sexual sterilization policy. Uh, so when it comes to Britain, it's much more related to class. That's Leslie Baker, a researcher at St. Mary's University in Halifax. We call Leslie up next, and she explains that, similar to Alberta studying California, every state had its own purpose for adopting eugenics. The Industrial Revolution, of course, started in Britain, and that class aspect is really strong in British eugenics. But when it comes to the states, we start to see, uh, in some areas, we see racial uh, ideology brought into it. And in places like California, they start focusing on what they would call the feeble-minded. So those would be people who were diagnosed with uh, mental illness or developmental delays. So that's the type of eugenics that became popularized in Alberta. And this discourse that's going on back and forth across the Atlantic, uh, one of the things about eugenics that's really interesting is pretty much everywhere took it and adapted it for their own purposes. So while people in Britain are worried about class structure and maybe the rise of the lower class, in the southern states, we see more of a focus on race relations. And then in California, they really laud themselves on being scientific. And, and this is a practice that's put in into the mental hospitals, into the asylums, and the superintendents really push for it. So Alberta follows that sort of dialogue that's going on. And it's the superintendents of these institutions that become really influential in politics and and push for these sexual sterilization policies because it's seen as a cure for a problem, a social problem that they're perceiving. Can, can you, sorry, just to clarify, so in Alberta no. you were saying that it was more about the feeble-minded, but it was my understanding that's also about uh, part of like the First Nations people, like it a is. way to control and populations. Part of what's going on uh, when we look at the Alberta eugenics is that they performed IQ tests or uh, interviews. And one of the things we know about IQ tests is that they're very culturally based and they're very based on education. So to a degree, even if they weren't specifically targeting the First Nations population, if there were a lot of First Nations children ending up through uh, social policies, I guess, more than anything, into these institutions, then... They don't have the background education that other children might have had. They don't have the same cultural um, experience that these IQ tests were really testing for. So obviously, if you're taking an IQ test that's designed by somebody who's had a very different cultural and educational experience than you, you're not going to pass it. So it kind of, in a roundabout way, targets uh, First Nations children without directly targeting First Nations children. So we learned that these questions are flowing back and forth over borders, which leads us to our original question. When Nazi researchers and policy creators were looking to implement their own program, where did they turn? We posed that question first to Erica Dick, our researcher at University of Saskatchewan. Out of all this, I'm, I'm taking, you actually looked into definitively this, this particular question that Tess had, and yeah. as best you were able to find... Um, it, it doesn't, doesn't seem like there's any evidence of um, representatives I, from the Nazis having visited? I couldn't find any evidence on the Canadian side. And I contacted a few of the researchers who I are very well versed on the German side. And um, 
had one out to well, then I'd moved to the University of Saskatchewan but he came to the University of Saskatchewan we worked together on this and he's continued to hunt through his the records that he looks through looking at the Nazi programs and early like he looks at the the, the rise of this program in Germany and he's found no evidence of it either hmm. and yet I've I've heard that persistent rumor that you know the Nazis got this idea from Alberta why do you think that rumor has taken hold here If you were to speculate. That's a good question. I mean, I, it's just total speculation, but I mean, I think there is a kind of, um, you know, it's, it's quite shocking, and uh, it's got a real mystique to it. And and yet, I mean, the, the program in Canada, well, I mean, the program in Canada was was interesting. And by 1937, they had removed the need for informed consent for a different, for a particular set of categories of of people that they felt were incapable of providing informed consent, and that included people who they felt had sufficiently low IQs. Hmm. That's the only jurisdiction in the Western world that removed the need for informed consent. Uh, you know, the Germans had informed consent provisions up front, but then they didn't have them after that. It wasn't that they removed them; they just didn't implement laws that had them. So it's just, you know it's a bit of a sleight of hand. So I can see. Uh, the desire to draw that connection and say, well, maybe they got that idea from Alberta. Um, but I just don't see any evidence for it. Um, I, there were a lot of different jurisdictions, um, and I mean, I can't remember, there's over 30 states that passed eugenics laws or sexual sterilization laws. Uh, there are only two in Canada, but there are many, many places throughout the world that are engaging in these kinds of programs. And the Germans certainly had access to lots of different programs if they wanted to. Uh, and I don't know that Alberta's, although aggressive by Canadian standards, was certainly not aggressive by comparison with most other places in the world. So it, it seems when I start to contextualize a bit more, I'm less convinced that it would be a hot spot. Because there were people advocating for this in the UK and in the US as well? Absolutely. Yeah, Indiana passed the first sexual sterilization laws in the world in 1909. Um, and so it would make more sense. And there were there were already existing collaborations with Cold Spring Harbor, which is a, a place that ends up doing genetic research after the, after the war. So at this point, it seems evident to us that the Nazis did not visit Alberta, nor German scientists from before the Nazis took power. We posed the same question to Leslie Baker over at St. Mary's University in Halifax. And Leslie tells us the frustrating reason why we might not be able to answer this conclusively. So the, the main source, if, if I wanted, well, when I have gone to look for this for myself and other people, um, we've looked at local newspapers because 80% of those records from the actual institutions were destroyed. But local newspapers were really uh, interested in reporting on this. Eugenics wasn't just a uh, behind-closed-doors sort of thing. It was really, really popular. It was really popular with the public. We have eugenics fairs. We have eugenics prizes. We have... Uh, best baby contests and fitter family contests. And anything that was related to eugenics is quite often reported on in the popular media, especially if they think that they're doing something really good, if they're making progress. Um, that will be reported favorably. When uh, the Nazis created their race bureau, uh, that was reported in Canadian newspapers as sort of a wonderful thing. Look what Germany's doing. We should be doing this as well. Uh, so the fact that there isn't any record that has been found in the local newspapers of a German visit uh, to Alberta is, you know, sort of indicative that 
it probably did not happen, at least not in any official capacity. Uh, the other place to look would be the medical journal. So the Canadian Medical Association Journal is a very long-running, uh, definitely predates uh, the eugenics movement and is still operative today. So we've combed through that for the years uh, predating um well, the rise of Nazi eugenics, I guess you'd say. And there doesn't seem to be any mention there either of German uh, scientists or physicians paying special visits to Alberta for this purpose. And uh, the last last big place I guess I'd look would be the Canadian Medical, Canadian Bulletin of Mental Hygiene, which is actually the original journal of what we now call the Canadian Mental Health Association. So they were founded in 19... 1919, I believe, uh, and it was the Canadian National Committee for Mental Hygiene. So they were really involved with eugenics. They were, it was a really popular, really promising new science. And there's no reports in that journal either of German scientists or physicians visiting Alberta. So we'd like to think that probably if that had happened, uh, we see other provinces when they do something that they think is especially worth noting, They'll, they'll send in articles, they'll send in letters to the editor, to all of these journals saying, this is what's going on in Nova Scotia, this is what's going on in Ontario. And we don't have anything from that period saying that. And, you know, as these esteemed scientists or physicians from Germany visited Alberta to look at our training center. So the chances are pretty slim that it actually happened. So it is that rumor that keeps going along and... You know, maybe sometime in the future we'll find otherwise. But right now, there doesn't seem to be any record of it. Hmm. It's interesting the way you talk about how the press at the time would have treated such a visit. It sounds like almost like, if you know, when Oprah has come to Alberta, there's yes. like a big splash in the press. It would have been, in historical context, it would have been a big deal if you we had other countries coming to look at our eugenics program because it would have meant that we were doing something really right. And... Hmm. uh that would have been something to brag about. So there would have been that, that sort of, you know, hey, look at us in the local newspapers. And just like you said, like if Oprah came to Alberta, that's the same sort of celebrity sighting that we might have seen. Wow. Tess, did you have any it, other questions? Oh, sorry. Leslie, you were going to say? Oh, I was just going to say, see, it, it does seem really backward, I guess, to us now because we, we think of it, well, Obviously, we think of eugenics in a very negative light, and to understand that you know everyone in the popular media and the you know day to day life was really enamored with it um, during this period. That they thought it was the next best thing to slice bread. It was a really popular science of the time. So we know now it's not a science, obviously. So if there is no concrete evidence that Nazi scientists came to Alberta to take lessons from our eugenics program. Why does the rumor persist? Erica Dick had some thoughts on that. I think it is a really interesting question and, and over time as I, you know, I, I, I was really intrigued by it as well and I thought it would be interesting to find substantial proof of, of you know, Nazi collaboration or something like that. But as, as I kept finding nothing, I kept wondering, you know, why does this myth persist? And, and what is it about this myth that is so interesting that, I mean, you're probably the, like, 20th person who's asked me this question. 
Um, so it's certainly <laughs> something that's that's out there. Um, that and I think people are keen to like. For some reason, there's a desire to want to show that the Albertan group of eugenics organizers, eugenic reformers, whatever eugenicists, were as bad as the Nazis. And I, I think there's something satisfying in, in, you know, it's sort of almost consoling to think that, uh, you know, yes, these people were evil. And yet I, I also believe that the story is much more complicated and, and I'm loath to, to see things in, you know, good or evil terms of it, off the cuff anyway. Um, but I think it's really difficult and it and it's perhaps forces us to, to think about this history a little more deeply if we are not allowed to write them off as evil. <sighs> okay. So thoughts on that conversation with Erica? I, I find I find her her uh, kind of conclusion of the desire for us to need these people to be evil really I think really important because I think what we forget is that people are often doing what they think is best and so I I think that I think part of me has just kind of assumed that the eugenics board was just this like evil being that we're you know trying to get rid of first nations people trying to get rid of you know who they decided were were feeble-minded and disabled and really like it is way more complex than that and uh yeah just i just think of yeah of all the people the important people of the time who thought that was the right decision so no that is it's 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 fascinating to kind of think of it from that perspective yeah Tess, thank you so much for um, trusting us with your question. Thank you for working so hard on it. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty fascinating. Um, and I, I expected the answer to be yes. Um, I, I, I think maybe because I was as tempted to morally condemn the people who ran this program as, as you know, Erica mentions, we, we all want to just say, well, you know, obviously our ancestors were purely evil if they ran something like well, this. Well, I mean, this is kind of off topic, but like I I really enjoy true crime podcasts, but my problem with listening to them is that anytime somebody commits a crime, they're labeled a monster. And and I so I find that whole like dichotomy of you you know, good or evil, human or monster just it it's really frustrating. So I think I think this practice of the eugenics and the eugenics board kind of falls into that it's like were they monsters or were they just people making really bad decisions well in retrospect really bad decisions you know and i mean i think i think i you know you hear the stories about how they weren't telling people that they were sterilizing them that they were going for like tonsils getting their tonsils out or appendectomy or uh, that is that what it was i couldn't remember they were going yeah they were going for like other uh, operations and then not realizing being released from the Michener Center and trying to have children and not realizing that they couldn't you know like that sounds evil to me <laughs> so yeah it's it's complex for sure yeah I worry that saying well that they thought it was the best thing at the time is dismissive of yeah. of the practice and and of people's experiences. So I want to make sure it's clear that that's not what I mean. <laughs> I'm like, they were doing what was best because that becomes an excuse for all sorts of racism and other terrible things. All right. Uh, is there anything else that you were uh, wanting to add to this conversation, Tess, before we wrap up? No, I feel like we could talk about the history of eugenics forever. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I think it's good that we had like this focused question. 
otherwise I, this would be like a three-hour podcast. <laughs> I love questions with answers. Yeah, although this isn't a definitive, it's just probably not. I'm with Sam. You never know. You never know. Which, hey, listeners, if you have time to dig through the provincial archives, <laughs> find some correspondence. If you can fly to Germany and yeah. look into any of their history from their end, maybe they have newspaper articles about it. Yeah. Yeah. Other sources like, you know, I would love, this has a little bit of overlap with the previous episode. I would love if anyone out there has existing copies of the Liberator, the Ku Klux Klan's newspaper that they published in Edmonton from 1931 to 1933. That's around this period. I feel like they might have reported on that. They might have been really excited about it. Yeah. Um, if anybody has any copies, uh, let us know. That'd be interesting to know. Yeah. Thanks so much, Tess. I really appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast. (laughs) In 2010, Edmonton designated a week in October to be Remembering the History of Eugenics in Alberta Day. The official eugenics programs in Canada ended a while ago now. And thanks to people like Leilani Muir, who sued the provincial government after her own sterilization, we've been able to learn a lot about the system. But people are still being sterilized without their consent in Canada. This year, in 2017... A report came out showing that healthcare providers in the Saskatoon area have been pressuring Indigenous women to get their tubes tied while they're in labor. Tubal legation. There are also organizations advocating for the human rights and dignity of people with disabilities today. Organizations like Neighborhood Bridges in Edmonton, which supports people with disabilities living in the community, and groups like Right to Love are out there for Albertans with disabilities who want to get support working towards healthy sexuality and loving relationships. You can find a link to that group on our website. Thanks for listening to Let's Find Out. This podcast is produced by Samantha Power and me, Chris Chang and Phillips. We love hearing your feedback about Let's Find Out, and we want your questions about Edmonton history. Drop us a line at chris at letsfindoutpodcast.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, and letsfindoutpodcast.com. We've also got a big bibliography of all the books we mentioned in this episode up there. And we've posted a copy of the original Sexual Sterilization Act from 1928. And if you're dying to geek out about more Edmonton history, I post between episodes on the Facebook page for Edmonton's Historian Laureate. Okay, thank you, time. Thanks to Tess DeHook. Thanks also to CGSR for recording help on this episode. To Jana Grekel, Paul Lombardo, Claudia Malacrita, Courtney Maxwell Alves, Nicola Fairbrother, Elizabeth Walker, Erica Chemko, and Heath Burkholz for research help. And to Erica Dick and Leslie Baker for speaking with us. Thanks to the Edmonton Historical Board and the Edmonton Heritage Council for supporting this podcast. To everyone who's been supporting it, especially Finn. Original music for this podcast is by the incredibly lovely human being, Doug Hoyer. Artwork for our logo by Andrea Hergy at Mount Pioneer Design. All right, that's it for this month. Until next time, keep your questions coming. <laughs> <laughs>